They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's OMRI certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. All right. Good evening, everybody. I'm in. Uh, I'm Tiffany Cross in for Joy Reid this evening, and we begin the readout with new revelations about January 6th. The Daily Beast is reporting on yet another plot by Trump's allies to overturn Joe Biden's victory. And I know there's a lot, so stick with me here. This one is from Steve Bannon and Trump's trade advisor, Peter Navarro. And this plot they dubbed the Green Bay Sweep. Now, get this. Together, they corralled Republican members of Congress to object to certifying Joe Biden's electors in the joint session of January 6th. As Navarro told the Daily Beast, we spent a lot of time lining up over 100 congressmen, including some senators. It started out perfectly. At 1 p.m., Paul Gosar and Ted Cruz did exactly what was expected of them. Now, those are Peter Navarro's words directly. Their goal, obviously, was to turn a routine proceeding into a forum for baseless claims and essentially overthrowing the will of the people. It was designed to get us 24 hours of televised hearings, Navarro admitted. Now, by delaying the process for as long as possible, they intended to put the maximum pressure on Vice President Mike Pence, hoping that he would eventually give in to their demands to send the electoral votes back to six states. This is just one of several plots implemented by Trump's allies that have been uncovered in recent months, and it comes as we learn more about the next steps in the investigation of January 6th. Now, The Washington Post is reporting that the select committee's rough timeline includes public hearings starting this winter and stretching into the spring, followed by an interim report this summer. Now, according to the committee, those hearings will be a dramatic presentation of behind-the-scenes maneuvering by Trump, his allies, and anyone involved in the attack or the attempt to overturn the election results. The Post also revealed that the committee has five investigative teams pursuing separate avenues of inquiry related to the January 6th investigation, and they've only just begun to merge those findings. Now, separately, The Guardian reports that the committee intends to investigate a phone call that Trump made to his so-called war room of advisors at the Willard Hotel just hours before the insurrection. That investigation is more urgent than ever, given that Republicans would not hesitate to shut down if they could retake the majority during midterms. And their hostility towards the select committee committee is another sign of how toxic Congress has become since January 6th. The Wall Street Journal reports that according to interviews with more than four dozen lawmakers and congressional aides, the House has become a deeply unpleasant place to work with simmering ill feelings and a series of ugly incidents fraying remaining bipartisan ties. Not to mention that the threats of violence have risen against members of both parties in the House and Senate. Lots to talk about. Joining me now, Dean Obadala. He's the host of the Dean Obadala Show on Sirius XM and a columnist for MSNBC Daily. Don Calloway, HBCU expert and uh, strategist and founder of the National Voter Protection Action Fund. And Cynthia Oxney, former federal prosecutor and MSNBC legal analyst. And she's going to kick us off tonight. Cynthia, these revelations um, are not surprising at all. I hate when I hear people say, I'm shocked. We're not shocked. These are things that were playing out long before Trump ever took office. But this Green Bay sweep, as they call it, 
it, it does not sound like it was illegal, certainly unpatriotic, but it doesn't sound illegal. In the eyes of the law, is it illegal? And what is it about this plot that can be helpful to the committee to compel the DOJ to pursue charges against some of these high-ranking folks? Well, I mean, the committee, it's... It's a pickle right now because I have to tell you, I'm pretty worried. And the attorney general of the United States has decided to take a back seat and let the January 6th committee go forward first. And then we have to hope that their their reporting is comprehensive enough that they can do a criminal referral, which will uh, spur him to action. And 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 he is and he's a good, honest and decent man um, with a lot of very good instincts. But at the same time, he's a cautious person. He's more of an appellate judge. And I'm concerned that the political um, difficulty of this, because everybody wants to kind of on some level move on and, and wish it wasn't going to be as bad as it is and doesn't want the political uh, rat's nest that it really is, um, that that's affecting his decision making. And we have to do this for our democracy. We have to look at this seriously. It's surprising to me that he would take such a backseat that he has. You know, when I was a prosecutor, nobody would have been putting my witnesses in the grand jury except me. And I would have been flipping witnesses. I wouldn't have been sending that out to some congressman to figure out. So I'm very concerned that our whole democracy is resting on the quality of the investigation of January 6th. They're doing a very good job, but it is the it is the Department of Justice's job and they're not doing it. Yeah, I mean, I take your point. And Dean, this drives me a little crazy because Cynthia made the point um, that Garland is cautious. And I think about Bill Barr. He did not care how he came across. He made the attorney general position essentially Donald Trump's personal defender and personal attorney. So I kind of feel like, you know, do Democrats need to play the same dirty game that Republicans played to at least restore some sense of democracy? And then everybody goes back to play by the clean rules. What's your take on that? We're never going back to the clean rules, Tiffany. Just want to say that at the outset. But we don't need Merrick Garland to be like Bill Barr, nor do any of us on the left want Merrick Garland to be like Bill Barr. What we want is Merrick Garland to do the right thing here. And this is, I think, even with Democratic leaders, they don't want to call for the prosecution of Donald Trump for obvious crimes. It is not partisan to call for someone to be prosecuted for waging a coup and a terrorist attack, which was January 6th. It is patriotic, my fellow Democrats. It is time we call for it. And I think, honestly, historians are going to look back, Tiffany, and say if Merrick Garland does not prosecute Donald Trump for obvious crimes, obvious crimes, that is what led to the downfall of our republic as we know it. And, you know, it's wrong what Bill Barr did. You should not politically prosecute someone. You shouldn't prosecute someone for political reasons, nor should you defer prosecution for political reasons. That's just as wrong. So here we are. As Cynthia just said, January 6th will be doing a great job, but the DOJ should be doing a lot of this. We need proof of life for Merrick Garland because he's got to step up. Our republic is on the line. Our republic is on the line. Democracy is on the line. And it it really damages America's standing in the global community as well when we see these kind of uh, fail-safes fail, essentially. Don, listen, um, you worked a lot of campaigns. You and I have had a lot of these conversations over the years. Uh, Should the Republicans take back control of Congress? This whole committee will come to an end. I think that's pretty obvious uh, from anyone paying attention. Um, I just want to remind our viewers that this is what happened on that day. Um, take a look at some of the violence. You um, see these people fighting law enforcement. 
um, shouting deplorable things, behaving deplorably. And let's just remind people that five people actually died on this day. Understanding that, now I want you to take a look um, at the folks defending uh, the actions that took place on that day. I knew those are people that love this country, that uh, truly respect law enforcement, would never do anything to, to break a law. If you didn't know the TV footage was a video from January the 6th, you would actually think it was a normal tourist visit. The question of whether or not the FBI animated some of the criminal conduct is one that is far more grave. They're going to dress up in red, MAGA, Trump paraphernalia to try to blend in and create trouble. The DOJ is harassing harassing peaceful patriots across the country. The reason why they're ta they've taken these political prisoners is they're trying to make an example. The people who breached the Capitol on January 6th are being abused. We have in this city political prisoners held hostage by their own government. Don, this is very concerning because these folks want company. According to the Washington Post, uh, they plan to expand their ranks next year, um, and they may not have a lot of resistance considering the crucial, um, excruciating voter suppression that's taking place all across this country. Uh, the Proud Boys have a comprehensive plan to seek elected office from the local, state, and federal levels. Is there a way this can be stopped, and what role do you think the committee's work will play during the midterms? Well, good grief. Uh, season's greetings to you, too, Tiffany. I would have never I would have never made you sit through a montage like that. Look, um, I'm sorry, my friend. America had to sit through it in real time. This is disgusting to see. Uh, I know. I think it's important that we be exposed to the real truth. Listen, I disagree yeah. with my friends here in as much as I think there's a parallel track. Obviously, DOJ has to do his thing, but Congress has to do his thing as well, because part of Congress's thing is being public, is bringing these things out into sunlight and having these proceedings in the day, whereas DOJ conducts legal proceedings, which are not always until you get to a certain level, a trial level, which are not always certainly for the public to consume. So I think that Congress has to have a role in making the role and the evidence public in terms of what exactly happened. When we talk about 1-6, I think we have to couch it in the proper terms, which is this was an authoritarian coup of government. It was a failed authoritarian coup, but nonetheless, it was an authoritarian coup with the objective and the goals of not only obstructing, but taking over the proper elected capacity of government. So when we look at that going forward electorally, I think that means very, very clearly the only reason that the coup did not succeed is because the tyrants did not control either chamber of the United States government, except for the executive, of course, which was a lame duck at that point. So let's be clear about this. If Republicans win the House and or the Senate in 2022 in the midterms, they will not certify a proper Democratic victory in 2024. And they don't have to if, in fact, a Democratic Department of Justice does not hold accountable the insurrectionists, some of whom were in Congress, from January 6th. So if they were not held accountable for an actual coup, what will stop them when they choose not to certify, when they have the authoritarian imprimatur to actually not certify uh, what happens after 2024? So we're in for very, very bleak times. We have not passed the Freedom to Vote Act, which has something to do with curtailing the massive amounts yeah. of voter support activity we've seen. And we're in very, very serious trouble, as you point out, Tim. 
And, and listen, Don, I mean, you're saying they haven't been held accountable. The low rank and file insurrectionists, there are some of them who've been held accountable. But I think the American people want to see, you know, will we ever see Donald Trump himself be held accountable? Will we ever see his children sitting members of Congress? Um, Dean, this brings me back to you. This interim report that they're uh, going to reveal uh, this summer. Uh, look, I get the point. This has to happen before midterms. I think the committee wants to show and remind the American electorate whose attention span is not always that long. I don't mean you MS. NBC viewers, but the masses of people across the country may not always be paying attention to the minutia of what's happening. Uh, I have to say, to be the resident cynic here, after the Mueller report came out, it was too much fanfare. People were clutching their pearls. It produced quite a bit of damning evidence, but nothing happened. And so I wonder if this report will have the same impact that people have just kind of lost faith in the system that any of these folks will truly uh, be held accountable or that democracy will be set back on the right course? Well, the one difference is now the DOJ is under Democratic control. It's under President Biden's control. It shouldn't be considered partisan. And, you know, I, but quick thing, I agree with Don. There should be two tracks. There's the January 6th congressional track, which looks at things like why there was a security failure. How do we prevent this? Then there's the criminal prosecution track. And you just showed those videos, Tiffany, of Republicans defending the January 6th terrorist attack. Donald Trump is going to have a press conference on January 6th in a week from now. That is literally like bin Laden, one year after 9-11, having a press conference to defend 9-11. This is where we are. And I have to say, as a Muslim American, watching the very people on the right who demonize my community for being soft on terrorism, knowing what the terrorists are, literally defending the terrorists who attacked our capital on January 6th, makes my blood boil. And I have to fight screaming every time I think about this because of what they did to our community that led to hate crimes and attacks on our community. So look, these people are terrorists who attacked our capital. And I say this to the Republicans, you're either with us or you're with the terrorists. And right now, numerous GOP members of Congress have chosen the side of the terrorists and there should be some consequences for that. Most of the Republican members of Congress have chosen the sides uh, of the terrorists. Yep. And we have to stop yep. calling them conservatives. These are right-wing extremists occupying Capitol Hill right now, holding uh, American democracy hostage, essentially. Um, Cynthia, I want you to take a listen to this voicemail um, that Congresswoman Debbie Dingell uh, played for uh, America this week. Take a listen. You goddamn old senile b you're you're as old and ugly as Biden. You ought to get the off the planet. You foul. They ought to cry you for treason. You and every one of your scumbag friends. I hope your family dies in front of you. I pray to God if you got any children, they die in your face. My question, Cynthia, is um, this reminds me, obviously, of the voicemail uh, that Congresswoman Ilhan Omar received. Uh, you know, there, this kind of vitriol is out there. But there is certainly a reasonable um, concern that this could lead to actual physical violence. The same way that we yes, have the wide net to hold other people accountable, is there a way to hold Republican members of Congress accountable should something else violent happen to any of these members who had their lives threatened? Well, the first thing that has to happen is the person who made that call has to be prosecuted, right? That's, that's job one. And, and job two is to continue to, um, to bring forth the truth and let people understand what's really happening 
I mean, it's hard to believe, but a majority of people in the Republican Party think Obama was born in Kenya. I mean, a majority of people in the Republican Party think that the election was stolen. And all we can do is continue to tell the truth. And all we can do is to let the January 6th committee do their work and and make sure people understand about the conspiracy. I mean, today you started the show with Navarro. Navarro needs to be he needs a, a subpoena after what he r- divulged today. I mean, they had a conspiracy to try and overturn this election. They had a little cute name for it. And they had Bannon, who was going to effectuate it. And when the, the vice president didn't go along, they just referred to him as Brutus, as, as if he's the person who stabbed Caesar. And so we have to go forward on that because the truth is the only solution uh, to what we're going through right now. We have to go through it as a country and begin to believe once again in the truth to support our democracy or, or it's over. It's, it's, it's not going to be a democracy anymore. But, yeah. but job one is to prosecute the people who, who are making these calls and these threats. Yeah, well, well, we'll see if any of them are ever prosecuted. And I'm happy you made the point that, you know, the Republican Party believe President Obama was born in Kenya because this did not begin with Trump. Uh, this is the only right. Republican Party I've known. And this is certainly not the first time that right-wing extremists have occupied Capitol Hill. Uh, but that's a truthful conversation that many are not ready for yet. Uh, but we're having it nonetheless. Thank you so much, Dean Obadala, Don Calloway, and Cynthia Oxney. Up next on The Readout, the Happy long morning. lines for COVID testing, the backlash against the new CD quarantine guidelines, and this big surge in COVID cases among young children. It's devastating. Plus, this was one of the ugliest chapters in American history, the Tulsa race massacre. This happened one century ago. And amazingly, three survivors are still living and still they fight for justice. And now there are new developments in that fight. You don't want to miss that. That's coming up next. And the sports world is reeling as COVID forces the cancellation of bowl games and sends hundreds of players to the sidelines. Meanwhile, some of the sports world's biggest stars are under fire for what they're saying about COVID. The readout continues right after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. The long lines at testing sites, uh, the mad scramble for masks, thousands of flight cancellations as Omicron thins airline crews, and now dozens of cruise ships under active investigation because of outbreaks among crew and passengers. Yes, many of us are vaccinated, but that terrible sinking feeling of those early days of the pandemic are back. 
D.C. has seen nearly a tenfold increase in cases, which has surged 987 percent the past few weeks. This is as hospitals across the nation grapple with how to rein in the spread of Omicron. But remember how early in the pandemic it seemed as if kids weren't as impacted by COVID as adults were. Well, that is not the case anymore, and we have the horrible numbers to prove it. Pediatric COVID hospitalizations are growing. New York State health officials revealed that the number of COVID hospitalizations among children has increased fourfold in New York City. That's approximately half of the admissions uh, of these kids are under the age of five. These are babies. As the nation wrestles with the new CDC guidelines that shorten isolation periods and as the unvaccinated remain defiant, we must ask again, are we a country that truly cares about our children or quite simply, are we not? The folks who call themselves pro-life, the anti-choice folks, they would have us believe we are. Joining me now is Dr. Ushe Blackstock, MSNBC medical contributor and the founder and CEO of Advancing Health Equality. Um, doctor, I'm so happy to have you with me today. I have so many questions for you, and I first want to get your thoughts on the updated CDC guidance um, for uh, quarantine Um I know you tweeted about it, uh, suggesting that you thought the guidance perhaps was premature, um, given that everybody doesn't even have access to high-quality masks. Um, say more about that. Well, thanks so much for having me. I, I will say that overall, I was shocked at the, the timing of these updated guidelines. We had the Delta CEO make um, the request of the CDC last week, and then within a few days, they updated their guidelines. So. Just the optics of that, you know, but, you know, essentially sending that message of, you know, profits over people, there's still so much that we don't know about Omicron. Uh, we don't know how long people stay contagious, meaning how long they have the ability to infect others. And so if we're saying you have five days if you're infected and then just put on a mask, there's a possibility that we could be sending people back to work still sick, still have the, the ability to infect other people. And then this idea of telling people to wear a mask for five days, you know, we still are not ensuring that every American has access to a high quality mask. So that's an N95 uh, or a similar mask. And also we know that rapid testing is currently a debacle. So people don't even have access to rapid testing. And that wasn't even included in the guidelines. So a rapid test would be important for someone to do to ensure that they are no longer contagious. So we're essentially sending people back out. They could still be contagious. They can infect their coworkers um, or the public. So I think we need to think about worker safety first. We need to make sure they have paid sick leave. We need to make sure that they have um, financial and food support for isolation and quarantine and have access to personal protective equipment first before you know, shortening their isolation period. Yeah, you know, and I asked uh, Dr. Fauci about this, and he assured um, our viewers that this was a, a decision the CDC made based on medicine. Um, but I, I have to say, it, it sounds like economics certainly played a role mm -hmm. here. Um, and, and just to make the point about face masks, I mean, you're right. A lot of do doctors are saying these cloth masks that so many people are wearing, that's just face decoration. It's not really uh, preventing the virus from transmitting. So I hope our viewers uh, take note of that. I want to talk about these babies because this is really heartbreaking. You know. Uh, you know, for all the people who are not vaccinated, um, who are indifferent to the health and well-being of their neighbors and the folks next to them, do you not care about the sweetest innocence, uh, most innocent of our society, and that's children? Uh, rising numbers of pediatric 
pediatric cases, as we just said, um, are increasing. As a result, around 300 schools in Maryland, New Jersey, New York, as you know, and New Mexico will remain closed. How would uh, a centralized um, mask mandate in schools impact these numbers? So, yeah, so I actually think that it's not just an indoor mask mandate. You know, we need a multi-layered strategy. I'm sorry, not so, mask yes, mandate. My it, apologies, oh, doctor. Sorry. Or vaccine mandate. My apologies. Yes. Vaccine okay. mandate. Okay, yes. So exactly. And I think a vaccine mandate would be, it would be incredibly important and not just one for staff, but for students as well. You know, I think there was this narrative that we uh, had seen and heard at the beginning of the pandemic that children are not that affected by COVID-19. But as you mentioned, we're seeing even in this surge, we're seeing hospitalizations here in New York City increase up to four times. And then we're in the holiday period. Children are going to be returning to school right? And schools are not inherently safer. They're safe if we have a multi-layered strategy in schools. And that includes mass, as you mentioned, but also getting everyone vaccinated, um, as many people as possible. And so we really need to really push out with that outreach and messaging around getting vaccinated is important, even for our smallest, um, you know, and our youngest, you know, children, if, as long as they're eligible in order to create a safer environment. But I also think that air filtration, ventilation, that's another issue that schools need to work on and need support working on. They need um, air purifiers and other resources in order to make the air safer. So if we use all of those strategies, we can make learning environments safer for children. But yet, as we've seen, Omicron is causing an increase in cases. And so we really need to be aware of how COVID can affect young children. And as we've seen during yeah. the pandemic, it's actually affected mostly black and Hispanic children. Those are, we have been had disproportionately higher hospitalizations and represented more of the COVID-19 deaths among children. That, that is devastating. And a majority of the children who are hospitalized, according to the reporting, uh, they are unvaccinated. Um, I, right. I want to talk about the uh, the booster. Oh, and, and just for one more thing on the schools. You know, we have to consider um, education support professionals as well. There are folks who work in the cafeteria, Absolutely. educators, mm -hmm. school nurses, counselors, et cetera. All those people are um, are impacted by this. I, I want to get to the booster, though, um, really quickly, because there is some reporting that the booster's efficacy tends to wane after around 10 weeks. Um, I understand that you feel like a fourth booster could cause um, basically immune system fatigue. I mean, I, I don't know what to do about this, because if we have to get boosted every 10 weeks, I mean, wouldn't you know, it's, it feels like there is no exit um, out of making our bodies resistant to this virus. I think, you know, the, the challenge is that we're seeing science evolve right in front of us. We're learning something new every day. And so some of the data out of Israel is showing that there may be waning immunity against infection after about 10 weeks um, after the third, the third dose. Um, but still holding vaccines, still holding up against the worst outcomes. So severe disease, hospitalizations and death. Israel has decided to give this uh, fourth dose to healthcare workers elderly people, as well as uh, people who are immunocompromised, so high-risk people. So again, they're still studying this effectiveness, right, of this fourth dose. And so we'll have to see if that's something that will be considered here in the U.S. I'm sure we'll be closely watching that as well. All right. Well, Dr. Uche, there's so many questions about this. You'll have to come back. Dr. Uche Blackstock, thank you thank so you. much. All right. Still ahead, the Justice for Greenwood Foundation is asking the Department of Justice to conduct a long overdue formal investigation into the 1921 Tulsa massacre. Now, this is a story I've been following closely, and the foundation's executive director, Demario Solomon Simmons, joins me next. Stay with us.
everyone, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? We're back with another installment of our special series with Pod 2024, The Stakes. I'm talking to experts about both Joe Biden and Donald Trump's records on specific policy areas during their time as president. This week, a biggie. AbortionEveryday.com founder Jess Valenti on the stakes of reproductive rights. Conservatives, Republicans would like us to believe that this is something that voters are sort of super polarized on, that we're evenly split down the middle. And that's just not true. Voters want abortion to be legal, even in red states, even in purple states. That's why we're seeing attacks on democracy. That's this week on Why Is This Happening? Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and follow. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. All right, many of you know this story by now. 100 years ago, a mob of white people bombed, burned, and looted the Greenwood neighborhood in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It was known as Black Wall Street. Greenwood was burned to the ground with as many as 300 people slaughtered and another 800 wounded. Survivors reported seeing bodies tossed into mass graves into the Arkansas River or loaded onto trucks or trains out of town, making a true tally of the death toll quite difficult. And it's important to note that at that time, Tulsa was the norm, not an anomaly. And yet the Tulsa massacre and the dozens of others like it remained largely unknown to the majority of Americans because it was covered up and ignored in our history books. Not a single person was held accountable. The quest for justice has been left to the three known survivors. That's Hughes Van Ellis, known affectionately as Uncle Red. He's 100 years old. Leslie Benningfield Randall, known as Mother Randall, she's 107, and Viola Ford Fletcher, known as Mother Fletcher, who is also 107. Those survivors are suing the city of Tulsa and six other entities, saying they must be compensated for the losses they endured. They accuse the city of Tulsa of enriching itself by appropriating the massacre. Last month, Demario Solomon Simmons, the lawyer for the three survivors, sent a letter to the Department of Justice requesting a federal investigation into this massacre. In the letter, Simmons writes, for the last three remaining survivors, their descendants, and the countless descendants of the other victims, an investigation identifying the individuals and entities that engaged in the racially motivated murder, assault, battery, arson, and looting of their property, and finding all of the mass graves associated with the massacre is a crucial component of justice. Indeed, it is. Demario Solomon Simmons joins me now. Demario, uh, I, you know, I have so much respect for you, and I'm so happy that you're here with me this evening. Uh, you and I have been having these conversations for quite a while. Um, at this point, what does justice look like for the descendants and the survivors? Well, good evening, Tiffany. So good to see you, and thank you for having me on the show. Justice looks like a lot of things, but in particular for this Department of Justice, justice looks like an investigation to come in and figure out 
where are the mass graves? As you stated, there were hundreds of people that we know were killed. There are thousands of people we never heard from again. These were uncles and brothers and fathers and mothers of my clients and all of the hundreds and hundreds of descendants that we represent and work with throughout the nation. And justice obviously will be uh, reparations and compensation for what happened. But as it relates to the Department of Justice, we're asking for the Department of Justice to come in and, and investigate what was the largest crime scene in U.S. history, talking about 40 square blocks. This crime happened on federal land. This crime uh, destroyed federal property. And we need the uh, president and the vice president, who as they met with my clients back in May and June, who stated that the federal government would not forget Tulsa. We're looking for the Department of Justice to remember those words and not forget Tulsa and then launch an investigation. But under this issue, we must have closure. We must know where all these mass graves are. We must get this absolutely investigated and show those people who who, who perpetrated the massacre. Let's, let's name those individuals. Yeah, I, you know, I think that is important, too. Let's name those individuals and let's name the thing that allowed those individuals uh, to be so violent. Um, you talk about uh, reparations. Um, I want you to take a listen um, to a conversation I had with the Tulsa mayor, Mayor G.C. Bynum, about his own family's connection uh, to what happened in Tulsa. Take a listen and I'll ask you a question on the other side. With you specifically, the Bynum family, as you, I'm sure you know, um, enslaved nearly a thousand people. Um, and you inherited that wealth from the family, where the African Americans here in the community had their wealth taken from them. So when you say no cash payouts, I think people look at it and say, well, wow, you inherited wealth, you inherited your position in life because of uh, enslaving people who look like me. How do you reconcile saying, yeah, but that was then, and we don't owe you anything for that now? Because you're asking me about reparations for an event that was a criminal act 100 years ago. He never quite answered my question, Demario. The audacity, the temerity, the caucasity of it all. Um, last we spoke, you were going before a judge, um, Judge Carolyn Wall. Uh, she was going to decide if this case can move forward um, or dismiss it. Where does that stand? Well, if we had that, it was September 28th, and we now are December 28th, 90 days later, and we still do not have a decision. And, you know, for our three living survivors who you highlighted this morning uh, before I started talking, you know, they're waiting each and every day trying to figure out if they're going to have an opportunity to move forward and have an opportunity to prove that this case desires, deserves justice in a Tulsa uh, City County uh, District Court. And we have not had that opportunity yet. And we're still waiting and it's been over 90 days. And, you know, how much longer do these people have to wait for justice? And it's just sad when you hear Mayor Bynum, who has been on record many times, said he's against uh, reparations. He's against compensation. He's against justice for Greenwood. Here's an individual not only according to your reporting that his family owned enslaved Africans, but his family has been in power in Tulsa for over 100 years. His great grandfather was a mayor of Tulsa around the turn of the century. His grandfather was mayor of Tulsa in the 60s and 70s. His uncle was mayor of Tulsa in the 2000s, and now he's mayor of Tulsa. So not only did he inherit wealth from his uh, alleged slaveholding uh, relatives, he's inherited wealth and power right here in Tulsa, right on the backs of those who were destroyed during the massacre. So as you stated, it is without, it's the height of hypocrisy for a person in that position not to support reparations, restoration, and repair for the people that suffered the massacre. 
Height of hypocrisy, but not surprising. Uh, and I just want to shout out Nehemiah Frank, who's the editor in chief of uh, the Black Wall Street Times, who uh, who uncovered uh, the history about his family. Um, and I, you know, I think it's important that we recognize it's disappointing that this judge has not made a decision. But again, the systemic oppression of black people. Should, there is no current black federal judge in Tulsa. Um, judge Carolyn Wall is a constitutional conservative. She calls herself a Christian family lawyer. Um, and uh, it's just disappointing. Um, I think out, out of this, the most important thing um, that I care about is how is Mother Fletcher, Mother Randall, and Uncle Red? You know, they, these these people are amazing. I mean, Mother Fletcher and Uncle Red just was recognized last week down at the Oklahoma City Thunder versus the L.A. Lakers game. They sat courtside and, and stayed the entire game, met a lot of the players and given out inter interviews and, and autographs themselves. And Mother Randall, she's doing just fine. She doesn't travel as much as those two, those the brother and sister, Ellis and Fletcher. But they're doing fantastic. But, you know, they really want justice. And, and, and they tell me and their family tell me, look, they're over 100 years old. They want to see justice for themselves. But it's more important to them that justice happens for their families and their entire Greenwood community and the Greenwood diaspora. As you stated, Joy, Greenwood was the Black Wall Street of America. And when it was destroyed, it dispersed people throughout the nation. And our organization, Justice for Greenwood, we represent and work with these hundreds of families. We have over 125 yeah. families in our network that we're fighting for each and every day. And we hope to get a decision soon from Judge Wall. And we hope to get a decision soon from the Department of Justice that they will move forward utilizing the Emmett Till Act, which gives them the authority to move forward with an investigation yeah. that we've been waiting for for 100 years. That's right. Yeah. Um, I'm happy that they're all doing well. I, you know, they travel a lot. And I told you to give a message to them when they were going to Ghana to please be careful. And Mother Fletcher <laughs> told you to tell me, honey, I survived white supremacy. I can survive a trip to Africa. So uh, we will have to keep our eye on this story. And thank you so much, uh, Demario Solomon Simmons, for giving us an update. We will definitely be in touch. All right. Up next, the sports world is not immune from the ravages of this pandemic. COVID is wreaking havoc with a huge spike in players and coaches testing positive, canceled games and health and safety guidelines in constant flux. Uh, Bamani Jones, he will join me next to break down all this chaos. Stay tuned. Okay, for all you sports fans out there, the run-up to New Year's Eve is also college football bowl season. But with COVID and the Omicron variant tearing through the country, let me just tell you, it ain't looking good. With just hours until kickoff, tonight's holiday bowl was canceled because of UCLA's COVID issues, making it five bowl games canceled because of COVID. On Monday, Boise State backed out of Friday's Arizona Bowl, and the team it was supposed to play, Central Michigan, jumped to a different one, replacing the University of Miami, which had to bow out of the Sun Bowl. Again, all of this because of COVID. A game scheduled for Christmas Eve was already scrapped, and two others were canceled after Boston College and University of Virginia pulled out because of their outbreaks on their rosters. Now, despite all that, the upcoming college football playoff games are still on. They will not be rescheduled, and organizers rolled out a new policy for if one of the four teams has to forfeit due to COVID. It's just another sign of the pandemic upending the sports world after a year 
of mixed success, especially now that the Omicron variant is surging. The NFL has been hit hard. More than 100 players are on COVID reserve list after record 106 players tested positive on Monday. More than 500 have been benched because of COVID this month alone. The NBA also has a surge. More than 100 of their players are currently in COVID protocols. And although on Monday, the league shortened the isolation period for those who test positive, the NBA has already postponed nine games because of COVID. College basketball, that has also taken a big hit this season, with hundreds of men's and women's games postponed or flat-out canceled. The question now, Will the Omicron surge send more of the sports sports world into tighter restrictions and affect major events in the new year, like Super Bowl and NBA All-Star? That's what we're going to talk about right after the break. You don't want to miss it. Stay tuned. All right, some sad news. Tonight, the NFL announced the passing of a football legend on multiple fronts. John Madden, Hall of Fame coach and longtime broadcaster, passed away at the age of 85. While he may be known to young fans for lending his name to the popular Madden video games, Madden coached the Oakland Raiders to a Super Bowl victory before retiring, prematurely, some might argue, at the age of 42, to become a giant in sports broadcasting. Joining me now is another giant in sports broadcasting, and that's Bamani Jones, host of the podcast The Right Time with Bamani Jones, and the upcoming HBO show Game Theory, which I'm so excited about, Game Theory with Bamani Jones. Thanks, Bamani, for being here. We have to start out with this Madden news. I'm just so curious uh, your thoughts uh, about him. Um, I obviously, as you know, not the best sports uh, enthusiast here, but I knew him for his comments like boom and doink. Uh, I hope I I said it correctly. Um, What are your thoughts on, on losing such a legend? Well, I think the running theme on the life of John Madden, at least as we all have known him, is humanity, right? Like one thing that I think it would be difficult for younger people is to realize that coaches didn't always look like boring, slick back CEOs. And John Madden, if you go back and look at him coaching the Raiders in the 70s, like in those short sleeve dress shirts and looking kind of disheveled, but also being really, really good at his job, he seemed like a regular dude. And then he moved into broadcasting where he was such an excellent talker and so good at like explaining football to people but also again like a regular person like that was the running theme with him I think is that touchable he seemed to be how tangible that he had seemed to be and so you've really got three different generations of sports fans that look at him as a legend in three different ways it's uh, it's quite a, the the end of an era. I mean, his name was synonymous with one of the most popular uh, sports or video games out there. Um, so, I, our, our thoughts and condolences to his family uh, this evening. A life well lived, indeed. Uh, I want to chat about some of these games being canceled, Bamani, because I just went through a whole list about all the college games being canceled, and um, the Rose Bowl though is still happening. Um, it's just down the road from where the Super Bowl will be played. What do you think the impact will be? Because in these stadiums, you know, they're packed. People are sitting close. I haven't seen a lot of protocols for what it takes to get in there. Obviously, the Super Bowl is still going to happen. It's an economic juggernaut. But what are your thoughts on how it will be impacted? Well, I don't know. The impact is a difficult thing to gauge because, I mean, a lot of these games are going to be canceled and they're going to be financial ramifications for a lot of people um, in the course of this. But what I think we're just going to see across the board everywhere is – They're going to do whatever it takes to get these games played. Like any game that you see that has been canceled, I can assure you they tried everything possible to find a way to get people out there to play that game. The Sun Bowl, for example, when a team backed out, they just basically went looking around for people who were looking for a game. And then Central Michigan is going to take a trip to El Paso because they're going to put that game 
on television. So I don't know what's going to be different in terms of fans and transmission. I have not looked closely enough at what the transmission numbers have been for people that have attended games up until this point. But what you're seeing in sports, I think, is the same as you're seeing everywhere else, which is the primary concern in the face of Omicron for people in charge seems to be staffing. And they're going to make the moves that are necessary to make sure that people can come to work. Well, let's talk NBA because, uh, you know, I think for anyone who knows you, you take COVID very seriously. You follow uh, protocols stringently. So I'm really curious your thoughts on Kyrie Irving's return um, to, to the NBA. Um, you know, New York has a vaccine mandate. Um, New York's your, your neck of the woods and he's going to be a part time player, which I don't quite understand. What's your take on all that? Well, I thought that when they first made the decision that you could not be a part-time player, it was totally understandable, especially with the dynamics of team sports. Either you're on the squad or you're not on the squad. That's what it was going to be. But they're down bodies. And it reached a point where they were losing so many people to COVID and just all the attrition that we're seeing from the season that the team basically made the decision that if Kevin Durant was okay with him playing and they could get him to play games on the road, then they almost didn't have any other choice other than to do it. So, like, this isn't, to me, a change too much around the protocols that have existed because New York hasn't changed his laws and he's not going to be able to play in New York. But I can understand why the team would bend on the other thing, which is you can't be halfway on the team. They'll take halfway, quarter way, whatever it takes to get these games played. What is your take on um, this meme that LeBron James posted? You know, look, I, I think we put a lot of responsibility on athletes uh, some, sometimes, but may perhaps warranted. But he posted this meme um, that kind of mocks people um, and, and, and the vaccine. Uh, you see it there on the screen. Does he have a responsibility uh, to encourage people to get the vaccine? And if he doesn't, should he be flipping about it with a meme like this? Well, he's responsible to encourage people to get the vaccine if he thinks the vaccine is what's best for people to do. That's what I would say his responsibility is. But I would say this about that meme. I don't even really fully understand what it is that he's trying to convey there. Like that was unclear to me. And a dude that's worth that much money and so concerned with everything that he generally says, I wouldn't think that this would be the time to be ambiguous about anything. He decided that was going to be what he did. He's not in a place where I think that he is allowed to back up and just be like, hey, I was just messing around on Instagram. You're a little bit too big for that. Now, with the responsibility thing, I want to be clear, though. I do think that for LeBron, as he has put so much of an emphasis on the idea that he himself is a leader, right, that he is a person that stands up in these times and speaks for other people. I can't believe he's handled this vaccine situation the way he has. Yeah, it's quite baffling to see. Um, listen, Bamani, I want to tell you something I'm very excited about, and that is Sports Theory with Bamani Jones on HBO. Please promise you will come back on my show and talk about it the week it premieres. You're going to be so dope and amazing, and we're all cheering you on. So thank you so I much for joining me this evening. It. Thank Gang you. Theory, look out for it. That's right. Thank you so much, Bamani. And that's tonight's readout. When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com slash app.